Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Buckle up, Sodomites, and welcome to the Sinister Sissies podcast, your guide to true crime, horror, and everything sinister, hosted by two gay guys from Australia. I'm Jared, your master of depravity, and I'm here with the succulently supple, I feel like I constantly call you succulently supple, Paul Carp from The Guardian. G'day. Well, I don't know, Jared, uh, today's episode on author Brett Easton Ellis has crawled out of the depths of my depraved brain, so I guess... For today, that means you'll be playing the role of Baby in the Woods, Butter Wouldn't Melt in Your Mouth Ingenue. I, I will be. I'm going to be the innocent one this this podcast, or, you know, as, as innocent as I can pretend to be, because uh, our episode is on Brett Easton Ellis, a uh, very infamous author, controversial author in many ways, and Paul is across it much more than I am, so let's learn all about Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, so Brett Easton Ellis is an author uh, who is famously part of uh, the Brat Pack. Um, so he was a, sort of an enfant terrible of, of uh, American fiction. He wrote um, Less Than Zero, uh, and it was published when he was 20. Um, and that that is a text about, you know, washed up teenagers, absent parents, uh, you know, drug addiction, sex, um, and... So he he got a reputation along with other uh, writers like Jay McInerney of perfectly capturing the the disillusion and um, dissolution of his generation, and then he really uh, made the big time with uh, American Psycho, uh, which is about, which we will talk about later. But it's about a serial killer who is a Wall Street banker, uh, and that you know shocked people with its uh, you know gory violence misogyny uh particularly you know patrick bateman killing prostitutes uh Mm. so it's he really cemented himself as being a contrarian um outspoken and you know someone willing to push push boundaries i view i view alice kind of like he there was this like generation of like gen x cool gays uh that happened all around that time so you had like brett easton ellis with his writings which were quite controversial but very very dark and then you had like um greg araki i think it's how you pronounce it he was a filmmaker who did a lot of really like indie queer disturbed fucked up type stuff and then like gus van sant there was there was this trend in the early 90s of uh kind of edgy dark gay men uh, which Alice definitely finds himself in, uh, and it's probably why he is uh, quite controversial these days because it's that generation is butting heads against a a different type of generation, a far less cool generation. Have you have you read many of Brady Snell's novels? I okay, I've read I read I've read American Psycho. I love American Psycho, um, and I the 
I was about to say, and that other teenage fucked up one, not less than zero. What came after less than zero? Rules of Attraction. Rules of Attraction. I I did read Rules of Attraction many, many, many years ago. Can't remember much about it. Um, There's a gay guy in that, isn't there? Yeah, the the main character Paul Denton is is bi, but seems to only sleep with men. So yes. yeah, which is probably Alice projecting himself into the story of it. Um, other than that, I I haven't been following his latest uh, books, but I have been listening to his podcast. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis has a podcast which is actually really interesting. It's kind of like interviewing actors and filmmakers and talking about kind of old school. Hollywood and how times have changed since old school Hollywood. And I find that really, really awesome. Uh, but you've you've got into his latest book. What's all that about? Yeah, so uh, Brady Snells has just published a new nonfiction book of essays called White. Uh, and it's a meditation on cancellation culture, where he's basically decrying political correctness as, as the new fascism and, and trying to push back against that. Um, and you know, if you read the interviews and the reviews of it, it's saying a lot of people say of it, oh, you should only read it if you're a Brett Easton Ellis completist, uh, because it, it does give um, a lot of autobiographical background to, you know, his the, his time of life when he was writing uh, some of these most famous books like uh, Less Than Zero, Rules of Attraction and, and American Psycho. But I mean, I... I I think uh, some of the reviews have been overly harsh uh, about it. There was a there was a particularly bad New Yorker piece that did the rounds a lot with Alice, where it it he came off terribly, and that's my only understanding of this latest novel is him being interviewed for that piece uh, and and coming off like a like a pro Trumper, but that but that's probably just the interviewer being quite unfair. Did you read that? I did, yes. Uh, well, I think I think he defended his his viewpoints poorly in that interview, but uh, the, the the book White has um, a, a lot more in it than than you would realise uh, given that that poor publicity. Um, does, does he mention his millennial boyfriend? Oh yes, he does. He does because <laughs> every lot... interview, every interview, he mentions this millennial boyfriend that he has, and I looked it up. His millennial boyfriend is like my age. That's not hot. <laughs> I think yeah, there's like a 22 year age gap between them. Um, yeah, and he yeah, it, that's some of the things that he that's what he gets criticised about most on social media is making generalisations about millennials, and he he defends it in white by saying, look, you know, I've got my millennial boyfriend, and I have other millennial friends, and these observations are based on, you know, based on uh, what these people are like, and you know, they think this of their own generation. So it's like Milo Yiannopoulos and his black husband. That's like always his defense for anything racist shit that he says. He's like, well, I have a black husband. Um, so if I told you that I think that your worldview uh, chimes quite well with Brett Easton Ellis, uh, what, what do you think that means? And, and, and uh, would you be flattered by that? I, <laughs> I, um, I can see the comparison. I mean, at least from from what I've read in terms of the interviews with uh, Ellis and um, listening to his podcast, I think that Ellis and I, one, I love that generation. I love that Gen X gay guy generation. I think they had such a wonderfully cynical, pessimistic worldview that was also kind of really liberating. So definitely on board there. I also, from listening to his podcast, he like me, has a, 
a real appreciation for trashy exploitation style cinema um, and very much of, of a style of, of viewing art, things things like film and, um, and literature, viewing it from the lens of just pure aesthetics and plot and, and spectacle and really loathing kind of moralization of 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 art mm. so if that's the main thrust of why i think i think i'd probably be on board with what he's saying i think that's a pretty good summer a good summary uh to to, to bring you up to speed with why i think you're so alike uh his his we'll start with a biographical similarity i date a lot of younger men <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not 22 years your junior <laughs> yeah. um uh, so, uh, start with a biographical similarity. He grew up uh, watching horror movies uh, and reading horror. Uh, and this is a passage from White that I think you'll you'll chime with. The books I read and the movies I watched insisted that the world was a random and cruel place, that danger and death were everywhere, that adults could help you only so much, that there was another world, a secret one, beneath the fantasy and fake safety of everyday life. Horror movies and horror fiction helped me grasp all of this at an early age. By the time I read Stephen King's Night Shift, having already read Carrie, Salem's Lot and The Shining numerous times, few illusions about the supposed neutral innocence of my childhood or anybody else's remained. Okay, I love it. <laughs> I thought you would. Um, I really like that viewpoint. And, and, yeah, and I think that's what I mean when I'm talking about these kind of Gen X authors. They had that... They had that... St- I don't want to call it cynicism because in my head it's not cynicism; it's realism. <laughs> but but they they understood the bleakness of the world and didn't want to like coddle people, uh, which geez, that must butt heads against millennial political trends. So Brady Snell's hates the concept of gay victimhood and the infantilization of gay men, and this is something he talks about particularly in the media treatment of. Um, for example, when um, the basketball player, now retired, uh, Jason Collins, came out in the US, he said that the media treated him as some kind of, you know, baby panda. Um, and it, 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 it fits into uh, what he calls the treatment of gay men as magical elves. Uh, so uh, another passage from White, um, he talks about... Uh, gay men being presented as a magical elf who appears before us whenever he comes out as some kind of saintly adorable et whose sole purpose is to remind us only about tolerance and our prejudices and our prejudices to encourage us to feel good about ourselves and to serve as a symbol instead of being just another guy fuck yes you know that like the the the, the stereotype of the sassy gay best friend right yeah is this completely sexless character um that is just there to be kind of tragic but comedic uh and the the mix between the two of them um but quite innocent and pitiable that thing that i've always growing up viewed as an incorrect stereotype because gay men have depth and are conflicted and can be aggressive and can be um over uh, too much and you know not this neat little little box um of a person for some reason i feel like that character is now uh internalized uh by by gay men and i i see this reflected in that they want to play this role as this like sexless pantomime peter pan type character uh so i absolutely agree with alice with with what he's saying 
Um, yeah, it's, I need to read this book. It's interesting that you uh, focus on on that as uh, sexless in particular as a characteristic, uh, because in White he he talks about um, his reaction to two films, uh, Moonlight, uh, which obviously won the Oscar for Best Picture and was directed by a straight man, Barry Jenkins, and then King Cobra, uh, which is a true crime story whose lead characters just happened to be gay and was uh, directed... And, and it's about uh, Brent Corrigan um, and the murders that were linked to, I believe, one of his producers or casting agents. Uh, we should definitely do an episode on that at some point. And so he compares them uh, because one directed by a straight man, the other King Cobra directed by a gay man, Justin Kelly. He talks about how there's actually very little visual depiction of desire and moonlight. He says it's pretty much non-existent other than one hand job on the beach. Uh, and instead, the movie is overly invested and obsessed with the protagonist, Sharon's pain, uh, because without it, the movie wouldn't exist. And it's, it's essentially a victim narrative. Um, mm. And in comparison, you know, King Cobra, he, he thinks he's dripping with very sexual aesthetics. Yeah, it's but, about porn. I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> porn and murder. It's my two favorite things. <laughs> and and he uh, and in making this comparison, he's not saying Moonlight's a, a terrible movie or that King Cobra is, is a masterpiece, but that, you know, one's underrated and one's overrated. And he argues that um, King Cobra is a more progressive step uh, in post-gay cinema than yet another anguished victim scenario. And poses the question, you know, when did people start identifying so relentlessly with victims? And when did the mm. victim's worldview become the lens through which we began to look at everything? Um, and, uh, and I know I know when people hear that type of rhetoric, and I totally understand what people mean when they hear that type of rhetoric, where they think that that's, that's punching down and that's uh, bullying and, 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 and being mean. But I imagine Ellis's point, or at least if, when I say something like that, my point isn't that um, stop being so pathetic. It isn't this like critical, you know, millennials are too sensitive these days. It's more a question of we're shaped by our cultural influences and we're, we're shaped by um, the norms that we have in society about each other and how we should behave in that you can almost be engineered to be more miserable and feel more miserable than you need to if the only lens in which you see yourself in your sexuality is through this lens of pain. Uh, and it's a hard it's a hard point to make without sounding like an asshole. And I think, at least in the interviews that I've seen with Ellis, he's not the best <laughs> at communicating it in a way that, that doesn't make him come off like, like a like an old man complaining about millennials. Yeah, I I think uh, he's a controversial figure, and he he rarely uh, makes the point subtly. Uh, but I think the argument is much subtler than people give him credit for. He's not saying LGBT LGBT people aren't discriminated against, uh, or it's easy to be black and gay. Or he's not saying any of those things. Uh, what he's arguing is that I mean, first of all. Uh, the one thing that gay people have in common is not victimhood, but desire. So mm. if you're going to make a piece of gay art, that should really be in evidence. Like the, So I, I guess he would think that Moonlight 
was a would be a much better film. Um, he posed the example if it were a blowjob instead of a handjob on the beach, or just you know more more ev- evidence of of longing and desire uh, from the protagonist rather than just focusing on on pain. Um, um, it reminds me there was a, a discussion of this at, on the Queers podcast where um, the guys in the Queers podcast were, were talking about the fact of um, can you be the way they phrased it can you be queer and be without sexual desire or um, not have sex and it, for this discussion to not be about sex at all um, and I think at least from my perspective being a gay man and not talking about sex seems bizarre to me that's the only focal point that matters i've not i don't have a sense of social identity uh beyond my sex life when it comes to being a gay man and so these like fawning over um depictions of things even when they just focus on like romantic love that to me seems inaccurate like as in you don't think there's anything you don't you don't think there's anything different about gay romantic love well i think there is something different about gay romantic love that's kind of what i mean like these these depictions are of a very heterosexual framework of love and romance pasted onto same-sex relationships when I actually think that there's maybe something different when it comes to gay relationships, particularly the sexual component of it. Like the sexual component of it is separate to the romantic component of it and um, almost prioritised possibly more than in heterosexual relationships. Like I think that's one of the reasons why um, in gay relationships uh, are more open and it's, there's more sexual fluidity and there's more group sex and things like that is because I think that gay men actually prioritize their sexuality <laughs> and their sex lives. This is my very long-winded way of saying, yes, more fucking, less, less innocent, nice portrayals of things. So desire should be an evidence. And the other thing is, I think the other point Brett Snellis is making is that... Um, Gay people are or can be different in just about every other respect except desire, and so that should be reflected. Um, that 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 should be reflected in in gay stories, uh, hmm. which is why he he preferred King King Cobra because he saw you know they were gay men that were presented as superficial capitalists driven by crime. You know that that's not that's that's not a, a characterization you're used to seeing. Um, Here's another yeah, and flawed, flawed characters. I think that's so important. Um, there's, there's, there's a niceness to uh, current depictions of things, and it's why uh, next episode we're going to look at Cruising, which was a film that was very, very controversial because of its depictions of of gay men. Uh, but I think when we discuss that in the next episode, I'm going to make a really full-throated defense for the fact that in cruising, gay men are kind of sinister and underground and kind of awesome. And like, that's far more refreshing to me as a depiction than anything I've seen recently in cinema. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And uh, in white, Brett Easton Ellis finishes this, uh, this passage with, this is what he wants to see in art. He says, give us dancing, give us bank heists, give us monsters, give us spectacle. So I, 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 I thought you'd cream yourself over this because, you know, this, this seems to be what yes. you want to give, give people with the podcast. And this is yeah, exactly this is what we want to do here. Um, we had a chat uh, in a previous episode that was cut out of that previous episode, but we had a chat about um, people who love true crime and how there's this this view that um, when they're consuming this true crime media, that lots of people like to talk about the fact that well, I'm very interested in criminal psychology is how they frame it, uh, and both of us agreed that that's that's bullshit. That people have this this desire for, for for viewing morbid content and disturbing things and fucked up things and i think it's it's really important that we acknowledge that you know when it comes to sexual desire when it comes to aesthetics and um other types of appreciation of being caught up in spectacle and stuff um that the best parts of that are their amorality that that they aren't tied to some moral or political assessment of what you're consuming you're you're caught up in the sensations of of what's what's happening mm-hmm. uh and i'm such a huge defender of that and yeah alice clearly is as well mm. um so what are your thoughts on this well i think i mean i i like his opinions i think he's got interesting perspectives on the importance of transcending gay victimhood uh, and so that I, I find I find that argument fascinating and it's a perspective that I hadn't considered before about how you know single-mindedly uh, gay culture is being kind of pigeonholed in in one particular direction uh, but I mean despite loving his novels I mean because I've, I've read them all and I, I just really i really like him as an author i do think it is accurate that uh his portrayal of gay characters shows you know some of his hang-ups about homosexuality and possibly exhibit self-loathing so really i, I wanted to go to i wanted to revisit some of brady snell's classics to look specifically at their homo themes because you know yeah while the envelope pushing violence of American Psycho, uh, you know, has has made it a classic, uh, you know, I I I think the when he when he writes gay characters, he he really he really shows his hand as someone who has kind of struggled with this uh, throughout his own life. Okay, I um yeah, I, I mean, it's been a while since I've read Rules of Attraction and American Psychos. Can we can we slap a hashtag problematic? What's 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 problematic about uh, his depictions? Okay, so homosexuality, where it crops up uh, in American Psycho, is that it's it's sort of postulated that uh, one of the reasons that Patrick Bateman, who is sort of you know paranoid, isol- isolated figure who's going about committing these gruesome um, crimes, it's sort of postulated that maybe one of uh, the reasons that he's disturbed is his latent homosexuality. Um, and I wanted to compare the novel with the film version. Uh, so the film version starring Christian Bale, um, he, Brett Snell says in White that it's 
very faithful. Uh, it's almost, you know, it's, it's scene for scene, like all, all the dialogue uh, comes out of the novel. He, he sees it as a very faithful um, to, to his novel. But I think the way that they change in, in the movie uh, points out uh, how uh, envelope pushing uh, in, in its borderline homophobic presentation of one of the gay characters in the novel really was. So in the film version, uh, Lewis Carruthers uh, is a business associate of Patrick Bateman and he goes into a bathroom in a, in a fancy restaurant and Bateman follows him into the bathroom um puts on his gloves and there's sort of sinister music that indicates that uh, Lewis is about to become his next victim. And he starts to strangle, uh, he starts to strangle Lewis from behind um, while Lewis is at the urinal. And Lewis feels him brushing against his neck and turns around and he interprets, he interprets this gesture uh, as a come on uh, rather than, that he's about to be he's about to be murdered and he tenderly disarms Bateman by kissing his hand and confessing attraction to him uh, and Bateman is completely disarmed by this he he spares Lewis he he becomes uh confused disgusted but he he loses control of what he was trying to do which was to kill him and he goes to the wash basin and 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 tries to get a grip of himself, and then runs mm. out of the bathroom. So, in the because fi- he needs to return some videotapes. Because he needs to return some videotapes. <laughs> um, so in the film version, uh, that is like a total victory for Lewis. He's you know he's about to become his next victim. He tenderly disarms uh, Bateman. He uh, possibly leads to a deep internal conflict that Bateman has uh, about his own latent homosexuality. The suggestion is that he's he's um, disgusted by the fact that, um, that, that there is some truth to Lewis's hypothesis that that Bateman is attracted to him, um, and and you know Lewis is Lewis is spared as a result of this, and there's a kind of dignity uh, in the way that he goes about displaying attraction to Bateman. Um, but if you if you go instead to look at this character in the novel, there's there's like no dignity about him at all because the novel is written in first person from Bateman's perspective. I think it shows an even greater hostility towards Lewis, uh, who he says speaks in a low faggoty whisper. So I I think that it goes beyond just, you know, Patrick Bateman is homophobic to Lewis by calling him, you know, a faggot and saying, I'll fucking, uh, I've done it before and I'll fucking gut you, rip your fucking stomach open and cram your intestines sign your fucking faggot throat until you choke on them. Like that's what Bateman says to Lewis in this scene. But I, I think hmm. it goes beyond that to just showing. Some people would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it goes beyond that to just like objectively uh, suggesting that Lewis is pathetic. So, you know, I quickly stand brushing myself off. And when I think his outburst has subsided, I'm able to walk away. Lewis grabs at my right ankles and tries to hang on as I'm leaving Barney's. And now, and I end up dragging him along for six feet before I have to kick him in the face while smiling helplessly at a couple who are browsing near the sock department. 
Lewis looks up at me, imploring, the beginnings of a small gash forming on his left cheek. The couple move away. I love you, he miserably wails. I love you. I'm convinced, Lewis, I shouted him. You've convinced me. Now get up. It's like... It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's sure. a funny scene. It's sure it's 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 a it's a funny scene, but you, like you see how in the in the novel Lewis is completely pathetic, uh, whereas in in the in the movie, you know, sure he's he's less buff than than Bateman. He's you know a bit paler and and anemic looking than, than Bateman, but in that bathroom scene, it, it manages to achieve. A, a a massive reversal from being you know about to be uh, about to be his next victim to to having this total victory uh, by by declaring his his affection for Bateman. Whereas in in the novel, it's just like he is a, just a simpering faggot. Like, and what do you think that reflects about Ellis then? Uh well, I think it ref- I think it reflects that they needed to tone it down for the movie because the the scene the, you know the scene in the novel uh, indicates not all of himself but some of himself hates some of himself. Yes, the self-loathing charge that he's 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 often laid against him. You think yeah, and I um cuz I get this a lot as well. I often get accused of having some sort of like internalized homophobia and for making very similar points as Alice. I can read something like that and not think that it has some sort of deeper reflection. It is it is a narratively useful characterization. Um, and it doesn't need to be anything beyond that. Or you don't need to psychoanalyze anything further. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is exactly what Alice is talking about in White, I imagine. He's talking about... Um, not just accepting a piece of literature for what it is and the the narrative and the characters and the plot and the spectacle of it for what it is and absorbing all of that, instead dissecting it and relaying it against your own values. And something is lost when you dissect things. It stops becoming what art should be, which is this this experience that you go through and becomes this, I don't know, opportunity for a blog. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like the point about um, just consider that it has a function in the narrative rather than, rather than a, a, a moral importance. I think, that's, I think that's a good way of putting it. But I, I think fiction has both. Uh, and when it's, when it's a pattern... Like if if it were a one-off, you can be like, all right, well, in this context, in this uh, in this place in the plot, um, the, uh, this is what what happens to advance the story, and that's just fine, and we move on. Something that that so that 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 label of internalized homophobia, which which tends to get thrown around, I often find that that people like to throw that label out there when they are having a values clash with another gay person and they can't rectify that values clash and so the only solution is well clearly you you're internalizing some sort of negative view of your own sexuality if you think like that um i i worry that it's a it's a rhetorical way of not being able to recognize difference 
That is a point that he makes in White. He he says that explicitly that people call him self-loathing because they 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 don't recognise that he's just different. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and are too lazy to sort of listen to the words and argue against the words, so they just try and like characterise him that way. But in addition to that very interesting point that he makes, it is a, a conclusion that I have drawn from his presentation of gay characters that that is correct. So there was the there was the depiction in American Psycho. What what about the other depictions of gay characters? Uh, well, in Rules of Attraction, uh, so which is his second novel, it's set in a small liberal arts college, um, much like Bennington, where uh, Easton Ellis attended, uh, and it follows a rotating cast of students. But the main protagonist is Paul Denton, uh, who is bisexual but primarily gay. We only ever see him um, having sex with men, uh, and he's chasing uh, his straight friend Sean Bateman, and it, it, it's all it's. All of these characters are in love triangles and there are missed connections with, you know, Paul's pining after Sean Bateman, who's pining after Lauren, who's pining after Victor, Hmm. who's gone to Europe. And it's lots of people getting drunk at uni parties and having a lot of sex, but mostly not with the person that they really want to. Um, And I I think that, uh, that there are other gay characters in it that are presented as much as kind of pathetic. I'm thinking of a character called Stuart in particular, who has a, a crush on Paul Denton, um, and he is shown as like lacking self awareness, um, being unable to see that Paul is not interested in him. I guess Brett Easton Ellis would say, you know, oh, so what? Some of the, some of the. St- Straight characters are deluded and pathetic about whether or not their uh, affection is reciprocated. Some of the gay characters are pathetic and uh, are deluded about whether or not their affection is reciprocated. But I don't know. I feel that all the all the gay characters are deprived of having you know rich inner lives or being characterized by anything else other than their sexuality. So like. Paul Denton. Paul Denton is uh, the the main protagonist of the novel, and uh, we we understand him very well. But then there are like subsidiary gay characters like Stuart, who are just characterised by, you know, in in his case, there's a scene where he's at a party where he thinks he's absolutely killing it on the dance floor. You know, he says he's twirling, jumping and gyrating around. And it's a very funny scene because each chapter is narrated by a different character. And we've actually already heard another character describe this scene. Uh, And the other person characterized it as Stuart basically ruining the party, ruining the dance floor Mm. by spinning around like an idiot, knocking people out of the way. Uh, And so when we get it the second time round in his telling as it, as this like heroic, heroic life of the party on on, on the dance floor, uh, it's a very ironic portrayal and we're, we're, we're laughing at him because we know that, you know, he's this, you know, drama or dance fag that's you know made it made an absolute goose of himself at this party mm. Paul Denton is quite heroic despite you know uh, n- not being able to permanently turn Sean Bateman uh, the straight object of his attraction uh, you know gay but he's he's 
presented as you know reasonably heroic, comfortable with his same sex attraction, and that's 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 all good. But I just find it like really telling that uh, an author who claims to be bisexual but seems to only have sex with men is really good at writing these heroic bisexual characters who claim to be bisexual but only have sex with men, mm. but then denies gay characters a, a, a sort of rich inner life. And, I mean, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me to the extent that I dislike the novel. I love the novel. I laughed so hard when Stuart uh, gives his version of, of um, you know, being, being heroic and tearing up the dance floor. But it's, I, I, just, I just find it curious that he constantly, uh, he, he constantly denies the gay characters that depth. I think it's interesting that I wasn't aware that Alice identifies as bisexual um, because in my mind, he, the, the relevance of that is kind of beside the point for me, as in I uh, engage with his writings and what he says and um, his worldview as as a person who is who's sex, sex with men and who's sexually interesting. And I don't know, he's... He, it's almost like the things that, that that are being viewed as critical from your perspective um, are doing that thing where you're wanting you're wanting to prioritize the social identity versus the the sexual component because I think that the one thing you can say about Ellis is that he what he writes what he says what he does it is a firm strong advocate in favor of gay sex and sexual liberation when it comes to gay men um, and really isn't that what matters. Oh, I totally agree with you, and that's why I still love the novels because I mean I I love uh, the the heroic presentation of Paul Denton. I love you know that he's chase fruitlessly chasing this straight friend of his, and you know just despite never going to turn him, he does you know succeed in in rooting him several times, and you know he also easily falls into bed with a family friend called Richard in, a, in another scene. So I, 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 love, all, I love all the sex and I, it, is, it is sex positive and positive about same-sex attraction. I just also think on top of that, it's telling that uh, the gay characters are always a bit more pathetic and, and, and deprived of having uh, as rich an inner life as the other characters. So that's why I, I love the novels. He's not cancelled. I don't find him problematic to the point that I can't enjoy I can't enjoy the narrative I just think I just find it telling I think that's fair enough I um I think it's great that we still have writers like Alice and that particular generation still being able to have a voice because I think I mean I've talked about this in the podcast before and anyone that follows me on social media knows this I think that we are going down the kind of wrong track in terms of queer politics and how our current culture is framing being sexually different i think that that's the wrong way to go and i think it's when you look at someone like alice and how he views sexuality and how he depicts sexuality to me that's that's exactly what we should hold on to as how we should view ourselves and how we should kind of live our lives oh i think I think the point he makes about gay victimhood uh, is very interesting and well argued. I think uh, 
some of the other uh, opinions, especially about millennials, are kind of stupid. Uh, but if you read White, he doesn't actually, he doesn't, he's, he's not, he's not dying in a ditch over them. He's just saying, I offer this view and then defending his right to do it rather than saying that he's always correct about the uh, always correct about these things he's just saying it's based on personal experience i shouldn't be cancelled just for having for, for having an expressing opinion it's just twitter don't take yourselves that seriously and i i agree on all that while thinking that some of his individual opinions are stupid and his characterization of millennials is kind of lazy <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Sinister Sissies podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sinister Sissies. You can also follow us individually at Jared Bartle and at Paul underscore Carp. We've also recently set up a Patreon, so if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash sinistersissies. I hope to see you next time, and stay sinister. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.